1: and welcome to Law Pod. I'm Dr. Amanda Kramer, a research fellow in the law school at Queen's University Belfast. Joining us today is Dr. Catherine McNeely. Hi Catherine. Hi. Um, welcome to Law Pod. Could you introduce yourself briefly? Amanda, well, it's great, Hi, to great to be, great be here. Um, I'm a lecturer in law
0: uh, at Queen's University Belfast. I'm interested in human rights, uh, critical legal theory and feminist perspectives on
1: law. Great, thank you. So the reason Catherine is here today, uh, she has recently published a book entitled Human Rights and Radical Social Transformation, Futurity, Alterity, Power. Um, This book has been shortlisted for the Hart SLSA Prize for Early Career Academics. How does it feel to be nominated for this award? I'm delighted to be
0: nominated for the Hart SLSA uh, Award. Uh, the book has stemmed from a piece of work that has been ongoing for many years. So, originally in PhD research, and ideas have developed um, subsequently. So, it's great to see the ideas recognised by one of the leading scholarly bodies in the field. Um, and it's also fantastic
1: to be recognised alongside other scholars of such high caliber as well who are nominees. That's great. Um, thank you. Congratulations on the nomination we were pulling for you. Um, so let's get into some of this then. Why did you write this book? So for a long time, I've been
0: very interested in the connection between human rights and radical politics. So by radical politics, I mean, politics that challenges regimes of power based on class, gender, race, etc. And in the scholarship and, and literature around this, there's been a bit of a toing and froing. So we see uh, early kind of radical, critical scholars being quite sceptical of the relationship between human rights and radical politics. So think, for example, of Karl Marx, who was very critical of rights. But then from the 1970s onwards, we see what people have termed a rights revisionism. So a return to rights to think about them as actually tools that may be of use in this kind of politics. So we could think here of people like Claude Lefort, who was a post-Marxist scholar, uh, more recently Jacques Rancière, Judith Butler, and this kind of reclaiming of rights for critical politics. However, then from the 2000s onward, more recently into the 21st century, we have a kind of critique of this revisionism and what Costas Duzinus has termed a rejection of rights revisionism. So I really wanted to contribute to that debate and to offer a way of thinking about rights and radical politics today to reimagine them so that they would be of use for radical social transformation. And I wanted to do so in particular in a way that linked together theory and practice. So brought together how we theoretically
1: think about what rights are and also how we use them on an everyday basis. Right, Um, so linked with that, one of the things I found particularly interesting in your book was um, this tension that you identified between human rights being deployed by Western state power and as a tool of military intervention um, versus this idea of human rights as an essential part of normative language for using for the expressing of condemnation of justice. Can you talk a bit more about this kind of tension? So I think that tension has been with rights from the beginning. So
0: if you think back to the early origins of rights as a language and a discourse, they came from a critique of state power and a limiting of state power for the individual. So we think about the French Revolution, the American Revolution. But then in the 20th century, when we have international human rights law coming into being, The state plays a bigger role. The state is the creator of rights and in many ways the gatekeeper of rights. So there's always been this tension between uh, using rights to critique the state and the state as the violator of rights and on the other hand, the state as the creator and gatekeeper. I think that in the recent past decades there has been a particular issue around western states and military intervention and human rights so david harvey for example talks about rights as swords of empire in recent years so the iraq war would be one very clear example of that where uh, rights were used to justify military action and uh, activities that very much violated the ideas that rights stand for so i think that the tension between the state and uh, emancipation for individuals is nothing new. But in the very recent past, we've had particular examples of where this has become problematic around Western states, around military, around um, global activities such as the Iraq war.
1: Yeah, and do you do you think that this kind of co-optation of rights by the state and use in things like military intervention, do you think that that is unintentional thing that states are doing in an attempt to kind of limit the radical utility of human rights?
0: In the book, I very much talk about the radical being limited in rights due to the discourses which have shaped what rights are. So I talk about statism, uh, liberalism and capitalism as three global discourses that have dominated throughout the 20th century at least. And I think that that has led to a particular shaping of rights in a way that that limits their critique of power. So I don't think that it's an intentional co-option on the part of individual states or a group of states necessarily coming together to intentionally use rights in a problematic way. There may be examples of that that we can think of, but I think the problem lies at a more foundational level, at what rights are, how they have been shaped. And that's what I wanted to, to get at in the book that we can return to the foundations of rights and think them beyond these kind of discourses which have limited their radical potential recently.
1: Yeah, so that's a perfect lead-in to this concept that you've come up with, the kind of centerpiece of your book of Human Rights to Come. Um, So how, how can you explain what this concept means and how you came up with it? So I use the idea Human Rights to Come to talk about
0: rights as a kind of futural discourse or an, uh, concepts that are always directed towards the future. So what I mean by that is that human rights are always unfinished ideas. They're always works in progress. So we can never pin down what a particular right means. It's always developing and evolving. And more than that, we can never fully realise rights in a complete way, so we're always striving towards a world where we're free from rights violations. So this is what I mean by human rights being to come, this idea of always being unfinished and always encouraging us to strive towards perfection, which we may never achieve. And this idea came from a number of different threads of thought. So one of them was the work of Kostas Duzinus, who is a critical human rights scholar. And Duzinus wrote a book in the early 2000s called The End of Human Rights. And in that work, he draws upon Marxist thought, so in particular, Ernest Bloch, and talks about human rights as containing this sense of the not yet, as kind of pointing towards the future and potentially pointing towards a, a better future. So I drew upon this idea that that Deucinus pointed towards in his work, and I also was informed by the work of Judith Butler, who is a, um, a feminist scholar, and in particular I looked at Butler's work on the universal, or universality. So Judith Butler talks about universal concepts like human rights, or like a universal concept of equality, or citizenship, and encourages us to think about universality as always unfinished, so we can never have uh, a complete idea of equality or a complete idea of human rights. They will always be exclusive, excluding someone or something. But Butler encourages us to strive towards uh, an inclusive conception of these ideas. So I drew those two strands of thought together and sought to demonstrate how they can reposition us in relation to human rights and how they can be used to think about what human rights are
1: again in both theory and practice. Okay, and that I guess links in with this concept of performativity that you talk about in the book. Um, Can you explain what that means and how that links in with your concept of human rights to come? So for those who aren't familiar with performativity, it stems
0: from linguistic theorising. So the work of J.L. Austin is um, the the kind of go-to work here in, in linguistic thought. And Austin sought to demonstrate how speech acts, so utterances when we talk, are often more than just words. They can actually do something or perform something. So an example that he gave was uh, a ship naming ceremony where someone says, "I name this ship, whatever it is." They're doing more than just saying that; they're actually performing the naming through their their words. And this idea has been developed in many different ways, and one of those ways is in the work of Judith Butler, who, who I've just mentioned. And Butler uses Austin's conception of performative speech acts and applies it to gender. So Butler would argue that we are not men and women from the beginning. Gender is not something that we have, but it's something that we do. So She talks about uh, how we talk, how we act, how we walk, how we dress. These activities that we do on an everyday basis actually perform our gender, and we do maleness or do femaleness through these activities. So, That idea of performativity, I think, is very useful to think about rights. And in particular, I talk about performativity as having an element of the future within it. So when we make a performative speech act, or when we do gender in a particular way, we are doing something in the present for the future. So we're striving towards an idea of maleness, an idea of femaleness, We are actually naming that ship in the present moment. And importantly, Butler's work in particular shows us that this future that we're bringing into being through our performative action can be different. So we can perform gender, for example, in a slightly different way to bring into being another future, a different idea of what maleness or femaleness can be. So I apply this to rights, and I talk about how when we make a speech act like I have a right to X, we're bringing that right into being. So we're making that in the present for the future. But I also talk about how we can claim rights in a slightly different way. So when we don't have a right, we can say, I actually am a subject of this right. Or we can say that this right, for example, includes X instead of Y. And in doing that, we're bringing into being a new future, free rights. So that's the connection between performativity and the future that I sought to bring out.
1: Okay, and that's where that concept of futurity comes into your work then in performing these rights for this kind of future purpose of defining or redefining what those rights might be?
0: Yeah, so I think that's one way that the uh, future can come into how we think about rights. It can come in in lots of different ways, but performativity is one area where we can think about rights in this kind of future sense.
1: Okay. And then are there other ways in which that concept of futurity helps explain or elaborate on your concept of human rights to come? So in the book, I talk about a number of different elements where futurity can come in. So
0: performativity is one, how we think about what rights are and what they do. I also talk about universality. So drawing on Butler's idea as well, how we can think about universal human rights as always unfinished and be universal in this kind of future way. Uh, I also talk about consensus and conflict in human rights too, and this tension between them, and how we need to think about human rights as striving towards a kind of future consensus that can never be achieved. So there's a number of different strands to human rights that I think futurity comes into, and in each chapter in the book I unpack one of those.
1: And I suppose with... The concept of universality, a lot of critical scholars would take issue with the universality of human rights. So this concept that you've come up with might be a way to kind of both highlight that human rights aren't always universal, but also try and tackle it and present a way for scholars to be able to engage with human rights in a critical way, but also in a way of make potentially making them more universal or more inclusive and limiting the alterity aspect of human rights?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're very used to thinking about the universality of human rights in a particular way in the tension between cultural relativism on one hand and universality, which has been critiqued as a very um, potentially colonising idea and Western idea on the other hand. And the way that I encourage us to look at universality, drawing from other scholars, of course, who have also done so, is to move beyond that binary and to think about universality in the way that you've just described that it is this ongoing process it's not a thing that rights have or they don't but it's an ongoing process that we're working towards seeking to make rights more inclusive for our
1: activity on an ongoing basis. Ah, That's really interesting Um, and how, how do these concepts you talked a bit about this in the beginning of you know how you're book fits into the existing literature. But I think your your contribution is very original, particularly within the research that's been going on at the moment in human rights. How does your work fit in with, with that um, part of literature? So I think there's a couple of different layers
0: to it. Um, I really wanted to contribute to the debate I mentioned about the link between human rights and radical politics and this toing and froing movement. And I sought to make the argument that rights are still of use in radical political action. And this is not something that all scholars would agree with. Um, but I sought to make an argument for the reimagining of rights in, in that kind of piece of literature. I also sought to further, I guess, some of the strands that are, are already existing in this area of work. So Dizines, for example, who highlights the element of the future and the not yet in rights. I very much read Dizziness' work as useful, but we need to move on and take it further. So after we've highlighted the future in rights, what can we do with that? So that's very much what I sought to do, bringing in the practice of rights alongside the theory to to further the kind of beginning that Dizziness offers. And I also do so by drawing on different resources. So Dizziness would look at Marxist thought, post-structuralism, psychoanalysis, and I drew on a different collection of work, which would be feminist work, but also radical democratic thinking like Chantal Mouffe. And I think that when we look at those different tools and we bring them in to our thoughts on the future and rights, we can uh, come across new insights and new st- strategic avenues that we haven't uh,
1: been aware of before. So can you explain for the listeners what the concept of human rights to come would look like in practice? So this is a very important question, very important element
0: of of the book. And towards the end, I dedicate a chapter to this, um, to thinking about how uh, activists or lobbyists, movements, groups could actually practice rights with an eye to the future and, and the to come. And a very important resource that I offer for doing so is the idea of cultural translation. So this idea comes from post-colonial uh, scholarship and it's also something that's used by Butler in her work. And cultural translation really is a roadmap for the practice of human rights to come. And what it argues is that those who are practicing human rights should view existing rights discourse as the dominant, so this existing ideas of what rights are, exist on one hand and on the other hand we have ideas of what we would want rights to be so alternative conceptions of what they could look like what they could do and a cultural translation encourage us, encourages us to see those two discourses as in conversation with one another and to actively facilitate a translation between the two so they, they give an exchange they enter into a dialogue with one another and the result of that is a new idea of what rights are a slightly modified idea that speaks to the limitations of the former so it's this kind of dialectical process to go back to the, the, the theoretical literature and it's an ongoing process so the new discourse of rights that emerges from translation is never final it's still always limited in some way and so we must keep on going with this translational activity and This may sound quite um, theoretical, but actually it's very uh, simple in practice. And this idea of encouraging two discourses to translate can be adopted in many different forums. So we could think about the UN, in UN treaty body monitoring uh, mechanisms, in other UN fora. We could think about local political action or international political action, talking about rights. We could think about local lawmaking or judicial activities. So there are a number of different spaces where groups or activists or practitioners can consciously encourage this translational activity that I'm talking about. And I also talk about a particular role for scholars and lawyers in this activity as well. Um, And I think that we can conceptualize scholars and lawyers and others as translators so, people who are helping with this translational activity. And this is something that Butler, for example, doesn't really talk about in her work. So, I think that there's a role for a number of different actors in cultural translation, and it provides us with a way
1: into the kind of practice that I'm thinking about. Right. So, outside of people that would maybe be involved in law interpretation or law making, um, how would radical activists, how could they? use this concept of rights to come to advance their particular claims? So I think consciously thinking about cultural translation is uh,
0: the way in there. And it's about locating spaces where the dominant idea of what rights are can be challenged. And entering into that kind of dialogue with whoever it is, if it's lawmakers, if it's the UN, if it's courts, and... Encouraging these kind of conversations and through those making small kind of reiterative changes, so small shifts in how we understand rights, who the subject of rights are. And this indeed has happened in the past so we could think of examples like in the 1990s where we had the women's rights or human rights campaign, that's exactly the kind of activity we're talking about where we had a dominant idea of rights that was critiqued as excluding particular subjects, women, And then we had feminist scholars and activists who asserted alternative ideas that actually rights could include things like violence against women or um, sexual violence and conflict or reproductive rights. And they brought these alternative ideas to the UN and to states and other um, fora. And through this conversation, we now have a new idea of what human rights are, that they do include violence against women, they do include reproductive health, etc., so it's thinking about that kind of activity consciously and thinking about how we can draw in different actors
1: to engage in that in the present. Right. So this is something that has in practice been going on for quite a while. It's just not been necessarily labeled as uh, an academic activity or or something particularly theoretical.
0: Yeah. So I think it's uh, these kind of activities have been going on, but it's also about how, what tools we bring to them. So I talk about women's human rights, for example, in the book as well. And the previous activity, although it was an activity of cultural translation, didn't wasn't necessarily radical in the way that, that I'm talking about in the book. So I think it's tapping into existing uh,
1: practice, but it's also encouraging us to go further in many ways as well. Right. So providing new tools maybe for people to take that concept or that that agenda a bit farther and more radical. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's great. So what's, what's next career wise for you? At the moment um, I'm working on extending the book
0: and the, the ideas that I've developed there uh, and I'm doing this in two ways. So the first is around ideas of time and international human rights law. So as we've talked about The future is is something that I've been thinking about in the book in relation to human rights. But at the moment, I'm taking this further to think more about the past, present, future, uh, linear conceptions of time, cyclical conceptions of time, how that influences international human rights and how we can think about uh, international human rights in a timely kind of way. So this is something that has gone on with law more generally. There's a body of work on law and time but not so much in international human rights law as a particular subset of of law. And so I'm uh, part of developing an international uh, network on this and we're holding a symposium on the topic of law, international human rights law and time uh, in July uh, in Belfast. And the second strand of my work coming from this uh, at the moment is also focusing on gender and human rights and asking, well, what is the future for uh, women's rights, for LGBT rights, for the relationship between international human rights law and gender. And this is something that I've been thinking through both internationally and locally. So I've been part of uh, an international edited collection on the future of feminist engagements with international law. So I talk about the future for international human rights law and gender there. Uh, and also locally, uh, other colleagues and I have been engaging in how rights are used uh In in politics in a local basis. So in the Northern Ireland context we've been talking about reproductive rights and the the use of language here uh, and our work has fed into the recent CEDAW investigation in Northern Ireland. So those
1: are the kind of things I'm working on at the moment. So potentially some real change happening with the work that you're doing now. Absolutely, it's exciting. Thank you very much, Catherine, for joining us. That was a really interesting conversation. I hope that our listeners found it interesting as well. And good luck with the prize. You have been listening to Law Pod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Amanda Kramer and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. Law Pod is funded by. Queen's Law School, and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Dr. Catherine McNeely. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter at QUB Law Pod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in our show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am Amanda Kramer. This was LawPod.